So uh, the title of this year is Miracles or Metaphors, a Methodology for Interpreting Miracle Stories in the Gemara. Okay. So what's the idea? So the, the basic thing is, is that, that we have, in a certain sense, two fundamental ideas that I think I, and I'm sure many of you have this sentiment, are plagued with when we learn Gemaras. On the one hand, we know it's Yesod in the Das, that there's such a thing as miracles. That a Kodesh Baruch Hu is a Kal Yachol, and he can do miracles. And the last shiur I given was about different ideas about miracles. Okay, and we know the foundation of everything is Harsinai was a miracle, the Nisim Yisrayim, there's such a, a major part of our das is miracles. On the other hand, we know that that's not quite the way the world works in general. It's not quite the, the natural, there is such a thing as the natural order. And uh, we, as we talked about last time, we recognize Hatzor Tamim Palo, we recognize HaKadosh Baruch through the natural order. And when sometimes we, um, we often come across Gemaras, there are many, many Gemaras, Chazals, Rashis, which talk about miracles, right? Which have miracles occurring to various characters in Tanakh, Tanaim, Amoraim, and so on. Okay? And we know, which is obviously a larger discussion, but we know that certainly many Maimore Chazal were not meant to be taken literally. Right? Rashba has a whole sefer taking a lot of explaining many different Gemaras, Agaritas. There's a Gra has a sefer called the which is translated the juggler and the king, which talks about a lot of different a lot of different stories, and he gives interprets it metaphorically. There's a Ramchal who has a thing that talks about that a lot of gemaras are, meta, are, are metaphors. There's a Ravavim and Rambam. There's Rambam and Fal Hirsch. This is throughout. There's Marsha talks takes a lot of gemaras as a metaphor. We know from the Misora that there's definitely Divrei Chazal are not always meant to be taken pshuta kamashmal. They're derech mashal, but at the same time. Obviously, certain Chazals are stories, are literal, are Chuta Kamashmao. And if we see a story of a miracle in a Chazal, it's not like we don't believe in miracles. We can't say, well, that's a miracle. That can't possibly be what happened, because after all, miracles aren't possible. Of course they are, right? It's Yisod and Ardas, the miracles are possible. So I think that I know myself, when I come across these Gemaras, I'm often puzzled. Miracle or metaphor? How do we proceed? And it's obviously not always clear. I don't think there's always a clear answer to that. And I don't hope to provide you with a clear answer to that. But at the same time, I hope to develop some sort of a methodology, certain guidelines which we perhaps use to help us approach this question on a case-by-case basis. Of course, again, this answer is always going to have to be every Gemara has to be analyzed in its own right. And like any methodology is only general guidelines and of course has to be applied in a case-by-case basis. But at the same time, I want to try to give some sort of a direction which I know has been helpful for me and, uh, and maybe we could, uh, you could help, you could use it as well. And I think what, what's... The way I, again, I, I, I never really quite had anything formulated, but I think based upon the shear we discussed last time about the different ideas about the way the Torah relates to Nisim, 
hopefully we could use those insights to help us with interpreting uh, Nisan. Gemara is about Nisan. So, that being the case, let's just quickly review some of the points we came, came away with from uh, the last year for whoever was there or what wasn't there. Ideas about Nisan. Okay, so first of all is that the laws of nature are, there's a Hatsur Tamim We recognize the Kaddish Baruch Hu through the perfection of his universe, of the laws that she set up. And that's like the, in a certain sense, the primary way we relate to Kaddish Baruch Hu is the Boreolam. And we study the Chukah Shoyim Varetz and we appreciate the wisdom and we have Avas Hashem through having the, great, the greatest appreciation of the laws of the, which Hashem created. And we know it's his will that in general that's what takes the day. That's what basically the laws of nature are the fixed way in which the universe operates. Okay. But at the same time, the laws of nature are laws and they're fixed. And they don't differentiate between Sadiq and between Rasha. They don't take into account, so to speak, knowledge of God and the world at large knowing about God and Kiddush Hashem Shemayim. And there are times where the laws of nature will lead towards something other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan in the Bria, will lead to Kal Yisrael being wiped out by the Mitzrim or by uh, <coughs> any other nation, and, uh, or a tzaddik getting persecuted at a certain time where it's not HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Ratzon, that that's what will take place. And as such, there's, there are times when necessary, HaKadosh Baruch Hu does an ace. Means he suspends the laws of nature temporarily. So the laws are the perfect system which operates in, in the long term, but at a given instance, at a given moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu may suspend those laws in order to bring about his ratzon, a higher ratzon, if you will, than the particular laws of nature. Okay? And the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, all the Nisim Mitzrayim are a prime example. In order to be Adam Mitzrayim, Kini Hashem, and Kini Hashem, and all the different ideas, the foundations, or our Sinai, was uh, one-time or isolated events which are serving to be able to establish the foundational ideas of the Torah. And the laws are still fixed nowadays, but they were temporarily suspended in order to bring about HaKadosh Baruch Hu's purpose. Okay. But... Despite the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does suspend those laws when the need arises, he, because of the fact that there's a tension, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants his, his laws. The laws are the way he generally runs the universe. So therefore, as we saw in the Ramban and, and other sources, that he tries to minimize the nace. Okay? So there's an, even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu does a miracle, he tries to do it as much as possible within the Derech HaTeva. So the Teva... Hashem, we had that example where the Ramban said that the Hashem Monoach made a one teva. Even one teva is not enough, it's a miracle. So if it's a miracle, then just don't make a teva at all. But no, Hashem, so Hashem commanded Noach to do as much as he could, and Hashem tries to minimize the miracle as much as possible. In general, even, the Ramban said, Hashem tried the Hashem Onesh, Hashem generally weaves, weaves Hashkacha and weaves Nisim into the laws of nature in a manner of a Nes Nistar, right? So the derech, the derech Hashem generally tries to stick to the laws of nature. Even when there is a miracle, there is a principle of minimizing of miracles. And as such, the, I think it was Ramban said, we shouldn't rely upon miracles because of this fact, as we know, Kodesh Baruch who holds the laws of nature in general, and that's Yishalmi, is not allowed to rely on a miracle, because in general, it's, not, it's more the exception than the rule. Okay? 
But despite that, there are times where miracles are necessary. And the Ramban said that, for example, there's two examples which the Ramban said were either if, he says, he does it when there's no other way to do it, either to save someone, to save, he says, um, there's one thing, I read this last time, it's not his desire to change the order, the order of the, the, the law of nature. Unless there is no other way to bring about a hatzala, a salvation, saving someone, a tzaddik, or whatever. Or to teach his name to those his, his adversaries, like Vakiras Yamsuf. So those are two instances Ramon cites either to save Hatsala or to teach people uh, to teach people ideas. So uh, about about Hakadosh Baruch Hu. So the point is, sometimes it is necessary to make an ace and an open ace. At times, that's all that's possible, and sometimes there is an ace. So they they do happen. Okay. But when they do happen, we pointed out last time, when there is a nace, it behooves us to look for the purpose of the nace. Because since we know that in general HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants his laws to be intact, so if there is a miracle, it must be there's some tzorach, which is warranting that miracle. And that is a cause of limud. That allows us, that invites us to study, to learn about Maaseh Hashem. Whoa, HaKadosh Baruch Hu suspended his laws for that. That's an opportunity for us to do a limud. Okay, and that was the, the discussion we talked about last time, is the, the Sof Kal Hanisim of Torah Shebech That was what the Gemara said, that uh, Miguel's Esther is the end of all miracles. And it said it did not quite the end of all miracles, because you see there was Hanukkah, and we know there's other Nisim, but the, the Torah Shebech is a vehicle of limud, and that was the closure. The Torah Shebech was complete. The limud about the Nisim, in, a, in an, il- an intimate, elaborate way, was completed with the uh, closing of Tanakh, and uh, that was with uh, Miguel Sester. But after that, there were still more Nisim, and we see after that there's still Hanukkah, and that ev- evidence to us that even though the Torah Shebech of Nisim is done, it doesn't mean Nisim are done. Okay, Nisim still happen even after that, even after the Sof Kol Nisim, which are Nitan Likasev, which are meant to be written down, still there's still Nisim, as we saw from Hanukkah, and as we see instances in the Gemara. Okay, and the Gemara, as we said, talks about Nisim, the Zagmar says, why don't Nisim happen to us so much nowadays? Back in the days of Rabbi Yehuda, there were a lot of Nisim, and now there are less Nisim. He said, the Gemara says, because they're Moser Nafshal Kiddush Hashem, which uh, we explained is that Nisim are done for a purpose, for an objective of bringing about Kiddush Hashem and when an ace occurs, it's important that people will learn from it, and if people will learn from it, and it will bring about Kiddush Hashem, then it's more of a reason why Kiddush Baruch would do an ace. But if, insofar as the people are at a lower level, and the nace is more just going to get people wowed by spectacular uh, supernatural things and not going to teach anyone any ideas, then it's less, less likely that a nace would occur. Okay. So fine. The bottom line is, is that in the Gemara, even though it's past the era of Nisim, in a sense, the Sov Kala Nisim, there still are, from the Gemara it's clear, there still are Nisim, although they're lesser. But there still are nisim, and there still are a vehicle for us to learn about the Mahasi Hashem. But again, when we find Gemaras which have miracles, just because nisim are possible, doesn't mean that they are necessarily literal. Sometimes, perhaps, Gemaras, and I was saying there are many Rishonim, Achronim, who interpret 
miracle stories and Gemaras as a derech mashal, as a metaphor. So that being the case, again, my, my goal here is to do is I'm going to take, let me just outline what I want to do here. I'm going to go through multiple miracle stories, okay? Stories which involve Nisim, which involve miracles. I have six stories I'm going to go through. I'm just going to quickly go through the facts of the stories, okay? Most of them are in Gemara. Then, and pose the question from all of them. It's going to be a question, what are they? Are these literal? Are these meant to be taken literally? Are they meant to be a marshal? And then there's one story I'm going to go through in specific, a seventh one, which is the Rashba has a commentary about, and he gives some insight. And I think it will help put us on a path towards being able to develop some principles of how to interpret these stories. And then we'll come back to each of these stories and try to see if we could gain some guidelines and help see, in a general way, how to interpret them. Okay, so again, my goal is not going to be to interpret any one of these stories in full depth, each one of them could be a share in its own right. But at the same time, just to give some general guidelines. With our focus on, is this literal, is it not literal? If it's literal, what could we learn from it? If it's not literal, what could we learn from it? Okay, so, so this part is, again, I'm going to tell you some stories now. Okay, so might be a little interesting, might be a little boring, depending on your uh, predilection. Okay? So, um, and some of these are famous Famous stories, okay? So the first story is a Gemara in Shabbos, Lamed Gimel, Lamed Bez. It's a story, the famous story of Roshim Yochai, okay, in the cave. Okay, the most famous Roshim Yochai story, right? So um, basically, again, in these stories, I'm going to skip some details because I don't want to take forever on this. But, so basically, there was, uh, Roshim Yochai said something which may have uh, been insulting to the Romans. And uh, when they, it turns out, it was found out, and they were um, trying to come after him to kill him. So he was on the run, and eventually it became clear that he had to be in a place that nobody knew where he was, because they were going <coughs> to torture any Jews who knew where he was, and he had to go out and to hide out. So sure enough, he and his son, they went and they hid in a cave. Okay? They went and hid in a cave. Now you know that there's no food in a cave, right? and this was a long-term plan. So the Gemara says that there became created for them a... Um, like a carob tree and a, a stream of water, okay, that basically would feed them, okay, and they were there for 13 years, I think, and um, so, and the so that takes care of the food, but now the problem is their clothing, so their clothing is going to wear out over time, so they devised a strategy that basically their clothing is, um, they took off their clothing, so it wouldn't wear out when from their, I guess, their body heat and their friction, and they hang, hung out in uh, sand, they went neck deep in their sand, and they used to learn Torah all day long. And when they came out, I think it says when they had a daven, they'd, uh, they'd come out and they'd get dressed, and then they'd go back into the sand. Okay, so you see, it's interesting right away. You see, they weren't that reliant on a miracle for their clothing to, you know, to last. But that's what they did. That was their program. And after 13 years, they basically ended up hearing um, Eliyahu, whatever, that uh, the, the Gezerah is gone, and they came out of the cave. Okay, so the first miracle, by the way, I just want to point out, there's two miracles I want to focus on in this story. One is that this, there was a carob tree and the stream of water that was somehow created for them. That seems to be miraculous, right? And then what happened is they came out and they saw this guy, these people who were plowing and they were planting, and uh, they said, What are these people doing? They're wasting their time plowing, planting. They're, they should be involved in chayolam. And whenever they would look, wherever they looked, would get burned up. Okay? 
seemingly, again, this is the second miracle, that seemingly they were looking at things, and whenever they looked at things, somehow they had, I don't know, lasers that went under their eyes, or I don't know, you imagine, however you want it to see, but it's depicting they'd look at things and they'd get burned up. And it wasn't good. Abbas called said, what are you coming to destroy the world? Go back to your cave. So they went back to the cave for another 12 months, and then they came out, came back out. And then, whenever they came out, whenever his son, Rebbe Lazar, we're going to see Rebbe Lazar, Rebbe Shimon, we're going to get another story later with him, he would um, hit, Rebbe Shimon would uh, heal. Okay? And basically, they saw one Shabbos, on our Shabbos, they saw some guy carrying two piles of uh, Hadassim, and the son said, what are these for? What do you, do you need this for? You're wasting your time carrying all these bundles? So he said, it's for Kavad Shabbos. Kavad Shabbos. So he says, well, can't you just have one? How many parallels do you need? So he says, no, one for Zachar, one for a Shamar. Okay? And he says, Shemar said to his son, you see how much the Jews love the mitzvahs? They are two, two carriers, one for Zachar, one for Shamar. And that's, that's the end of the story. Okay? So basically, um, again, the two miracles are the, the stuff being created, the, the carob tree and the, and the stream of water being created for them, and then the second miracle is them looking at things and burning them up, incinerating them. Okay? So the question is, did these things literally happen? Is the whole thing a marshal? Is it partially a marshal? Was there really a cave? Were they really hiding? Were they really Romans? Was there really a carob tree being created for them? Were they really burning things up? Right? Sometimes the story might be partially literal, partially not. Right, so this is a question when you come across the story. Good? Okay. Fine. The next story is, um, there's a series of Agatatas. This is what the book, The Juggler and the King, is about. Okay, there are 22 stories from Rabbi Barbarchana when he went on the sea trips, journeys into the sea. Then he, um, no, I'm not doing 22, don't worry. Okay. So um, there, if you go through them, there, each story is a little wilder and crazier than the next. Okay, they're very, very strange stories. And again, the, the Gra wrote a commentary, which among other Majrashim, but a lot of them, which he's taking up, are trying to interpret these stories of Darach uh, Mashal. Okay? But I'll just give you one of, this. One of the stories, one of the uh, things which it says there is just, uh, you know. So it says, um, the Rabba says that the people who um, went down to the sea told him that well, there's a wave that sinks the ship. Okay? The people who go down to the sea see there's this big wave which is trying to sink a ship and the wave appears to have a ray of white fire at its tip. Okay? So again, a boat. It's a big wave with a white fire at its tip and is coming to sink the ship. And when you strike it with a club which says on the club, on the stick, Ekiah asher ekiah ka Hashem tzavakos amen amen selah If you hit it with that stick, it subsides. Okay? That's it. Okay. The Gemara is again Ayin Gimel and Aleph and Bava Basra. Okay, it goes for like a daf and a half or so there of all these different stories, but that's one of them. So it sounds like this wave, which is devastating, it's going to kill people, and somehow you have this miraculous stick which has all these names of Hashem on it, and if you hit it, it's going to stop the wave from killing you. Okay. So again, is there literally such a wave with white fire on its top, and will is there this magical stick somehow which is going to work and? Heal it or not, right? Okay. The next story is... Um, again, my, I'm just going through the shot here. Okay. The next thing is, is it's not a Gemara, it's a Ramban, who quotes a Medrash Rabbah. But it's a, famous, it's a story with Yosef, by Yosef and, the, and um, Potiphar. So the, the Pasuk says, uh, I forget the Pasuk exactly, ki Hashem that uh, his master saw that Hashem was with him, 
His master saw that Hashem was with Yosef. So what does it mean, his master saw, ki Hashem ita? How did he see that Hashem was ita? So the Chazal says, this is the Ramban quotes this, and, and we'll get to it at the end, the Ramban quotes an interpretation of this Medrash. But it says, melachesh v'nitnas, melachesh He would whisper and enter and whisper and leave. Because Yosef was whispering all the time. Okay? And what happened? Amar lo mizogrosnim. So his master said to him, pour uh, boiling water. And sure enough, there appeared boiling water. Okay? Mizog poshrim. Pour um, lukewarm water. Hey, poshrim. And sure enough, Yosef was, uh, so he was whispering, somehow made uh, lukewarm water. So the master said, Ma Yosef, what's going on, Yosef? Tevin, Afarayim, Harashim, Mitzrayim. You bring like straw to Afarayim, a place with a lot of straw. You're bringing magic to Mitzrayim. Right? What are you doing? You're doing all these magic tricks? Seems like you're a magician. Until when? Until finally one day, his master saw the Shechina standing over Yosef. That's what it means that his master saw that Hashem was with him. That's the Pasuk. His master saw Hashem was with him. It means all this time he thought Yosef was doing these tricks, these whispering magic tricks. And then it turns out he saw that really Hashem was with him. So again, the question is, the Pasuk doesn't say anything about him magically making water appear. It just says, But the Medrash is imputing this story, which seems to be miraculous in nature, of him making boiling water or cool water or whatever it is. Okay? So again, did this actually happen? Was there actually this, this story, these miracles happening of making water appear or not? Okay. The next story is... The story I did in my shir last year, or this year actually. So it's a Gemara in Ksubos. Oh, by the way, that Ramban was um, uh, Lamed Tas uh, Gimel, and the Barashas Rabbah is um, Pave of Hey. Okay, so then the Gemara is Ksubos, Samach Zayin on the base. So the story of Ma'ukva. Famous story of Ma'ukva. He, um, he was very, very good, a big tzaddik, and he was very uh, at a high level in his, in his tzedaka. Okay, the Gemara there in Ksubos, that's where a lot of the sigas on uh, tzedaka are. So Marukva, he used to do is, um, he, he gave, he's uh, one of those people, the stories about giving tzedakah in private. So he was uh, very secret. He used to do, every day he used to go to um, this Ani's door and he'd slip money in his door, right? And, um, and in this way, he was, uh, he was like a gadol. So it would have been embarrassing to start giving this Ani in, in public, so he gave him privately. So one day, he was with his wife, I think he was late to the base of Medrash or something, so his wife came to get him. No, that's, I guess, what the wives did back then. You know, so, fine. So, um, so, sure enough, they were going back, and they were slipping the money in the door, and the Ani saw, saw the money coming in, so he decided to run after them to see who it was. Okay, he wanted to know. So Marukva and his wife started running away. Okay, so you can imagine the scene. Okay, so they're running away, and sure enough, I guess he was gaining ground on them. And it was getting intense. So, uh, so, so um, you know, picture like a movie scene or something. Right? So they're running away and they come and they see a, um, a, f- a furnace that was recently swept out. Okay? So they figure that's got to be safe. So, um, or it's uh, maybe risky. We'll see. It was risky. So they uh, went into the furnace. And um, surprisingly, their feet were burning. Right? So, um, so Marukva's feet was burning, but his wife's was not. So his wife said, don't worry, step on my feet. It'll be okay. So sure enough, she stepped on his feet, 
and uh, I'm sorry, he stepped on her feet, and it worked. Okay, they got away. And so he felt bad. After the story, he felt very bad that seemingly there was a, a nace, if you were, to help his wife, my feet not burn. And after all, he's a big tzaddik, right? I'm sure she was also, but still. So it says, don't worry. She says, don't worry about it. Don't feel bad because my zuchus is greater than yours. Because my tzedakah is greater than yours. You think you're such a big tzedakah, but for me, first of all, I need my the house all day long. I'm giving them stuff all the time. You're not really there all the time. And secondly, I give them food ready to, ready to eat. So that you give them money, but then they have to start going to the store. So it's like a higher level tzedakah that I'm involved in. And therefore, Rashi says, my zuchus is greater than yours. And that's why the nasal said that this, that's why this is happening to me, that I, my feet were saved from being burned, they're not yours. Okay? And uh, the Gemara says, why they have to give their life? Why they do this altogether? They're risking their life, it would seem. So it says they learned from Tamar, in um, Tamar and Parashvesha, but that basically a person should uh, give uh, their life, like Tamar did. Give better to give your life than throw yourself into a fiery f- a furnace, than a fiery a fire, than to um, the embarrass your friend in public. So that's what Tamar was going to do instead of embarrassing Yehuda. So you see, they were learning from that that they were basically <laughs> seemingly risking their lives in order not to embarrass this uh, this sonny. Okay, fine. So my question is again: the, the miracle in this story is the feet not burning. Right? So, uh, seemingly, if you go in an oven, yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, you're going to get burned. Maybe sometimes, yes, yeah, sometimes no. Maybe you could say they wasn't sure if they were going to get burned. But bottom line is, you see, she's saying, is this my zechot greater than yours? That's why it's happening. So, that does seem to be some sort of a miracle, hashkafa, something. So, again, is, my question is, is this a mashal? It doesn't sound like a mashal. It sounds like a story about him giving tzedakah. Right? But then, is there really a miracle going on here? Or not? Okay. Is it a metaphor? Okay. Okay, next story is uh, another famous story about Elisha Balkanafayim. Okay, so Elisha was, um, there was, the Romans had this decree that, uh, that you're not allowed to wear tefillin. Okay, and if you get tefillin, they're going to break in your brains. Okay, Yenakros Mocha was a harsh decree. And um, Elisha, he was very uh, zahir, very careful about the missile of tefillin, and he was a big tzaddik. And he held that Ratosus explains, he held that you have to give your life. And it's time of shmad, time of persecution, and you have to give your life for mitzvahs in a time of shmad. <coughs> so he held that you have to wear tefillin. So he used to go out and wear tefillin. And after all, they wear tefillin all day long. We just wear tefillin davening, but that's the mitzvah tefillin is really to, if you, you wear tefillin all day long, and that's what he did. So he used to go in the streets wearing his tefillin. So one day, this Roman general, a Roman policeman or whatever, saw him, and he started running after him. So Elisha was running away. And um, he took the tefillin out of his hands. Okay? And he, I'm sorry, off his head, and he put them in his hands. So the general came and asked him, what, what's in your hands? So he said, oh, it's just a dove, the, the wings of a dove. And sure enough, he opened his hands, and a dove flew away. Right? And the tefillin uh, miraculously turned into a dove. Right? And the Gemara says, why did he say dove? Why didn't he say some other bird or something else? So it says, just like the wings of a dove protect it, protect it, Apparently, I don't know about those, but their wings protect them, apparently. So, too, the mitzvahs protect Kal Yisrael. Okay, so he was saying it's the mitzvahs, which he's wearing, tefillin, which is the mitzvah, the mitzvahs protect us. And then, sure enough, that's, I guess, what happened. The mitzvah turned into a dove and flew away, and he was safe. Okay, so once again, is this, did this actually happen? Is this really, it sounds very miraculous, it's not normal that tefillin turned into doves. So, did that happen? Is it a mashal? Okay. 
And the last quest story is um, also a very interesting story. Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Shimon. So this is the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was in the cave with him. Okay? So he, he was a very big tzad. The Gemara is very into He's a great gadol. Greater than Rabbi Nasi. He was like, he was, you know, one of really, really, uh, a lot of stories in the Gemara talking about his greatness in Torah. And um, he was, you'll see. There's also another fact which is going to be relevant. He was very, very fat. Okay? You'll see, it becomes relevant to the story. Okay? So what happened? So he, um, he went, he saw this guy, there was this decree that the, the Degayim had, that you have to turn in Jewish robbers. Okay? You have to turn in a certain number, they had a quota of Jewish robbers that you had to turn in, and they were going to kill these robbers. Okay? So basically they appointed, they appointed um, this, this, this guy, a Jew, to find a certain amount of robbers, and they would kill them and turn them in. So Rabbi Shem said, well, how do you do it? How do you know who the robbers are? He says, look, I don't really know, because they hide. But after all, it's a quota. What do you want me to do? I don't have a choice. So he says, you can't do that. You're going to take innocent people? So he says, let me teach you. Rabbi says, let me teach you what to do. Okay? So what you do is you go at the fourth hour of the day. You go to the marketplace, to the, where they had a breakfast break or whatever it is. You go to the store, to the bar, to the, I don't know, wherever it is, the, 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 the shop. And you look around and you see, that's when people are drinking wine. They're drinking. And you see who's drinking and who is like nodding off, dozing off. Who's really tired. Okay? And if you see someone who's doing that, you ask him, what, what's your profession? What do you do? So if he's a, a, a tamachacham, so you know he must be, he got up early to learn Torah. And that's why he's no dosing off, he's very tired. Okay? If he's a worker, it must be he got up early to work. He's a powell, he's a worker, he works, he must have got up early, early to work. If he's a night worker, so you say, look, it must have been he was up very late at night, he was doing his work. But if, none of those excuses, so you say it must be that he's really a robber, he was up late at night stealing in people's houses, and uh, therefore he must be the guy. Okay, so we had this whole uh, methodology. So, um, so, so that's what was his advice. So it was, it, somehow the, the word got out to the king, to the, the Romans, I guess, or whatever, that this was Rabbi Shemalazar's advice. So he says, you know what? It's your idea, why don't you implement it? So they appointed him to be the guy in charge. Now Rabbi Shemalazar is the guy whose job it is, the detective, to find all the uh, Jewish robbers. And he was going to, they said, implement your technique. Okay. So sure enough, he did that, and he used to grab robbers, and he was doing it, he was, he was collecting them up. So Rav Kacha, who I think was his rabbi, he was not happy. He thought, he said, he called him Chometz ben Yayin. Okay, so vinegar, the son of wine. It's his father was Shem the great Shem who he's calling wine, and you're like vinegar, you're like low level, you're like spoiled wine. It's, it's, it's an insult. <laughs> You know, it's not too popular these days, but, you know, if you know someone, whatever. So, you know, so he says, What are you giving the, the, the nation of Hashem to, to death? Right? So, so, I'm just removing thorns from the vineyard. Right? I'm getting rid of the thorns. I'm not, uh, these, are, these are bad people. So he says, look, Let the owner of the vineyard, Hashem, Destroy his own his own um, thorns. It's not on you to do that. Okay. So apparently, the other Balim Misora, you'll see from the, the later in the story, it's Rishuvar Kacha. But many of the Balim Misora did not approve of what Rabbi Shimon was doing. They held he was giving up Jewish people to death. It was like Moser. 
and, um, and it wasn't appropriate. But he held like this is what I had to do, right? And he said, "Look, this is the there's a quota. After all, what are we gonna do? Give over innocent people? This is this is the quota. This is the decree from the kingdom." See, the tshuva is actually and there's a rashba and rashba to talk about what you can learn practically from the story about Moser. But that's uh, beyond this. So, um, so what happened is one day there was a, uh, a cleaner's guy, a kovas, okay, so a laundromat guy. So he came, um, he went to Rishon Malazar, and he called him Chomedz Ben Yayin. Okay, he's not a, Rishon Malazar was a rabbi, he was a Yitam Chacham, but this, this plain, simple guy called him Chomedz Ben Yayin. So Rishon Malazar said, Rishon uh, Malazar said that this guy is such a Chutz Ben Yayin, the Chutz of Kulei Hayim, must be he's a Rasha. So he says, grab him. And they grabbed him to, uh, to take him as one of the robbers. So afterwards he regretted it. He felt very bad. He said, um, you know, he tried, so he tried to get him back, but he wasn't able to. And they, they basically killed him. So he was crying that, uh, that he basically he gave in this person to be killed, even though he didn't really quite have evidence. He just said, he deduced from the fact that this guy is so chutzpah against me. Why is he against me? It must be because he's a robber. And that's why he's, you know, upset at me. But he felt maybe I wasn't right. So sure enough, the people came and told him, no, no, Rabbi, you were right. This guy, he and his son both slept with an Aram Rasa on Yom Kippurim. He was a total Rasha, and therefore everything was good. Don't worry about it. So he said, he put his hand on his stomach, okay, and his gut. We'll see, he says, my stomach, my stomach. Be happy, my stomach. If this is even the Sveikos which I had, even those things, cases which I was in doubt about, I was actually right. Certainly the Vadais, the certainly the, what my normal technique is, is going to be successful. In other words, he's like complimenting, praising his gut. He's like, you know, he said, yeah, he has a gut feeling. I've got a good gut. I think that's the emphasis on his stomach. He's saying, my stomach, my stomach. You see, I was able to sniff out this guy. Even though I wasn't sure, I was vindicated it was really true. Okay? He says, I, I'm certain, I'm certain in my innards, my stomach, that uh, worms are not going to be sholate on you. That these are some sort of a metaphor saying is that they're perfectly, this is, this is their, they have a, I have a great intuition, this great gut, that it's able to, my stomach is able to sense out the proper, uh, you know, gone of them or not. But still he didn't feel happy. So he did uh, this technique. He basically had a surgery. They gave him a the thing and made him go to sleep. They brought him into a marble room, some sort of a sterile environment. They cut open, you don't listen if you're squeamish, they cut open his belly and they took out barrels and barrels of fat and they put it in the sun in the summer months and it didn't spoil. Okay, this is an experiment. And it was like a nace that basically the fat didn't spoil. And if you're familiar, the Gemara says, doesn't fat never spoil? So... It says, well, it's the other parts of the fat which do spoil, whatever. But basically, it was a miracle that, um, that the fat didn't spoil, and that assured him that, in fact, it's true. Like he said, his gut is accurate, because there's a miracle happening that his gut didn't uh, spoil. Okay? So, interesting story. <laughs> this, is the, this is the most, uh, by the way, the story gets even more interesting. If you go further in the story, this is the more the normal part of the story. Okay, so um, you go further. This is, by the way, pay gamble and base and yeah. So my question is, did this really happen? Okay, did this literally happen? This sounds like a miracle happening for Shemalazu. Did it happen? Okay, so that's the same, same question in all these stories. Okay, okay. So, um, so what I'd like to do is now to take the story that the, that the Rashba talks about. Okay, and if you didn't like all these stories, sorry if it was a little boring. But, um, you know. So, um, 
So the story, this, this last story, and this is the one that the Rashba has a, bit, has a big piece about, okay? So Rav Pinchas ben Yair, maybe you've heard of the famous Rav Pinchas ben Yair. So it says, this is Chul and Zayin and Aleph. It says he was going to do Pidjon Shvuyim. The, the Gemara talks about how the bigger mitzvah is mitzvah rabba, it's the greatest mitzvah. Pidjon Shvuyim, redeeming captives. Right, a Jew who's captured by the Gayim and you're going to save him. So Pinchas ben Yair was going to do Pidjon Shvuyim and he came to this river, the Ginai River, and it was, it was blocked. He was blocking his way, and he wasn't going to be able to do Pidjan Shuyim. So he said, Ginai, chalokli memecha, split from me. Let me pass. Okay? So Ginai says, uh-uh. It says, you're going to do the will of your master, and I'm going to do the will of my master. Right? And you, I'm definitely doing it, the river says to him. But you, maybe you're going to be successful, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not going to be able to redeem this captive. He says, so Pinchas Ben Yari wasn't impressed. He says, if you don't split from me, I'm going to be gozer that you're never going to have water uh, pass on you. So, it listened to that. And it split. Okay? It split. So, uh, I'm going to skip a little bit. But basically, Rav Yosef says, you see how great this person was? He's greater than, or as great, conclusion, as great as Moshe and 600,000 Jews. Because uh, the river, the Yams have split for them. And the Ginai River split for Pinchas Ben Yair to enable him to go and do Pidjan Shvuyim. Okay? So that's the story which the Rashba takes up on. Okay? So that's the story. So again, you have here Pinchas Ben Yair going to the mitzvah of Pidjan Shvuyim and the river splits for him. Okay? Now you have in this story, okay, so now we're going to start to analyze, starting with the Rashba. Okay? So you have in this story two Nisim. Okay? At least... Two of so I, as far as I can see. One is, Pinchas Ben Yoyer is having a conversation with the river. Right? So that's not natural. Right? After all, rivers don't talk. Right? And then secondly, you have the miracle of the river splitting. Splitting for him. Right? And I guess on both of these class stories, both of these miracles, you could ask, did this literally happen, that he had a conversation with the river? And did the river actually split for him? Okay? Fine. So... The Rashba, in interpreting the story, I'll tell you the punchline, he says, no, he didn't actually talk to a river, but yes, the river did actually split. Okay? So what does he say? So he, he basically has, he, I'm just going to summarize the few, few things which he does have. Okay? So uh, he, his first point he makes is that, as, uh, the way I started this, <coughs> is that nisim are possible. Okay? As he showed in the Torah, that miracles are possible. That nisim, for Klai Yisrael, for tzaddikim, in isolated instances, are possible. And he cites various stories in the Gemara which clearly indicate that miracles do happen. Okay? Certainly within the power of a Baruch to do miracles, and he certainly does do miracles at important moments in history to save someone or whatever the case may be. Okay? That's point number one which he lays down. But then he says, despite the fact that miracles are, ha- are possible, that's true, but that doesn't mean that at times, miraculous, supernatural depictions are used by Chazal in order to metaphorically teach us an idea. Okay, and he, he, he cites, he says, there are many Chazals which have conversations between God or people and inanimate objects. Like the moon, everyone knows that Chazal about the moon, argued to Hashem, why you, how could two kings be, you know, rule the sun and the moon? So then Hashem said, the moon, you make yourself small, right? There's a whole conversation, he says, are we supposed to believe before Hashem created the moon, Hashem was having a conversation with the moon? Right? He says, that doesn't, it's a mashal. He says, and the mashal is, he says, sometimes the mashal is used to, so, so to speak, this is part of like the, 
the argument the moon is making is like an intrinsic argument, which, so to speak, God is considering in the bringing about the Bria. Okay, and, and he says, I mean, whatever that's, you have to look at the moon thing, but he's saying is very often these depictions of conversations between people or God and inanimate objects is really just elucidating the ideas involved in a, in a, in a, convers- in a, in a certain decision. And he says, similarly, when you have in this example, in this story, you have uh, Ben Pinchas Ben Ya'ir arguing with the river, it's not Pinchas Ben Ya'ir arguing with the river. The river's not talking. And Tosas also learns this way. Tosas says it's either it's the sar of the river or it's Pinchas Ben Ya'ir thinking this to himself. But basically what the Rashba says is he wants to show you that even though Pinchas Ben Ya'ir had the capacity to enable a miracle in this instance, it's, uh, it behooves a tzaddik not to try to do that, to try, in general, to try as much as possible to avoid a miracle. And there's a resistance. The, the voice of the yam, of the river, saying, I don't want to split, is the argument that do not, be, do, do not take, take light with the laws of nature. The laws of nature are carrying out the Ratzon Hashem, and we should, even though at times it's necessary for a miracle, but there's pushback. The river is giving pushback, which means the laws of nature are resistant to change, which ultimately, of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is resistant to changing his laws of nature, but it's depicting it as the river is arguing back and saying, I don't want to split, I'm carrying out the Ratzon Hashem. So even though it might be in this moment, I know, you want to split the river because after all, you're doing this great mitzvah of Pidgin Shvui and you're a big tzaddik, but on the other hand, Hashem is not so, not so quick to break the laws of nature. So you've got this clash here between the laws of nature. It's not simple, a simple matter to, uh, to break the laws of nature. So that's what the Rashba is saying. It's a mashal depicting the river talking is really just presenting a counter-argument, an argument of why the laws should not be broken in this instance. Okay. But you see that Rupin Chasvanyara won out. And that's what the Rashba says. Is apparently, you see that when there is a big tzorach, okay, and again, how to decide what's a big tzorach is beyond us, but when there's a Tzorach, like this great Tzadik, Pinchas Banyar, doing this great mitzvah of Pidgin Shvuyim, and arguably, if he wasn't going to split, the river was apparently in his way, it wasn't, he wasn't going to be able to do it, and this captive was going to be killed, or whatever it was, he wasn't going to be able to redeem him, so then apparently, Makash uh, Rechus saw fit that an ace would happen, that an ace would happen, and the river did split for him, okay? And the Rashba concludes, he says, you see, apparently, that in terms of the Mahakadosh Baruch Hu's that a tzaddik has the capacity to override the laws of nature, as you see by Moshe Rabbeinu by Kriyas Yamsuf, and as you see by Pemchaz Ben Yair in this uh, see. And then he makes one interesting point at the end. He says, and certainly in a case like this by the river, because the Rashba says is rivers are not like a sea or like ocean rivers, Sometimes they're running and sometimes they dry up. And I guess there's a tide. I don't know exactly. No, I guess not the tide. But however it works. But he says rivers aren't always flowing. Sometimes you go to a river and it's high and sometimes you go to a river and it's low and sometimes it's stopped and sometimes it's not stopped. So he says it's like by Chris Yamsuf, there were walls of water. It was a sea and the water was piling, piling. That was an open, blatant breach of the laws of nature. But he's saying here, the Rashba says, is that just because the river stops, it doesn't mean it was exactly like Kriyas Yamsuf, even though the Gemara is comparing it to Kriyas Yamsuf. At the same time, rivers stop. So he's saying is, it wasn't clearly an open breach of the laws of nature. 
the timing worked out perfectly, that it was exactly when Pinchas Ben Yair was uh, trying to get across, but at the same time it wasn't, so therefore it's all the more so, he's saying, is that Tzadik has the capacity for something like that to happen. Okay? Fine. So, that's roughly, you, know, you can look at it, it's very interesting, it's, it's on this Gemara and Zayin Aleph in the Rashba's Sefer, okay, which again, I did that Sefer in the different year, but it's um, the Perish Agadas, it's a great Sefer, and he takes a lot of Agadatas and tries to, that's his goal of the Sefer, is to try to interpret them and uh, explain them in a, in, a, in a clear, elucidate what the Chazals are getting at. So, uh, so the point is like this, is that in this, in this story itself, you see he takes two miracles, and what does he do to them? He wanted them, the miracle of this, of this sea talking, he says basically is a total mal- metaphor, didn't happen, right? And then the one of the, the sea, the river splitting, he is saying it's literal, but at the same time he is minimizing it, right? He's changing it from what you might at first think, that it's basically this crazy like Kriyas Yamsuf, but then he's saying it's a river, rivers dry up sometimes, right? So he's kind of making it into a natural miracle, if you will. Almost like an ace nistar, right? That he's interpreting it not as we might seem at first sight, but he's interpreting it as obviously there was a hashgacha that was involved, and Hashem was making it happen. But at the same time, it wasn't blatant breach of the laws of nature, as was the case by Kriyas Yamsuf. Okay, fine. So that being the case, I think maybe we could we could try to understand why it is that he's doing this, that the first miracle he's taking as a total metaphor, and the second one he's not, he's taking literally, right? And to try to use this to help us to develop some guidelines and to some principles which are involved in when we see these miracle stories, how to interpret them. And it seems to me is like, for starters, whenever we are faced with one of these gemaras, one of these miracle stories, we have, at least I could see three possible ways to interpret them, Okay. Either to interpret them as absolutely literal, whatever it says exactly happened. Okay? Another way to interpret one of these stories is, is an op- opposite extreme, an absolute marshal, total metaphor, didn't happen, right? like the river talking, he's saying. Right? And the other one is more of a nuanced type of interpretation where some breach happened, but it was not as blatant as it might seem at first sight. Like what the Rashba does over here, that it's the river splitting, which was Yad Hashem, but at the same time it was almost masked as a natural occurrence, okay, in the timing. So he's, that seems to be another approach when you see these stories, is to interpret them as Yad Hashem, but then at the same time not necessarily as blatant as it might seem at first sight. Okay? So that, that to, to me is when I, when I see one of these stories, I kind of think about those different possibilities. Is, you have to, did it happen? Is it a metaphor? Did something happen? If something happened, then, well, what kind of thing could have happened that it's trying to teach us? Okay. So how, how do we go about classifying, deciding whether in, in any of these stories, let's say in these six stories which we talked about, which, what, which of these interpretations we should take? Okay. So I'd like to begin in the first, the first principle I'd like to derive from there's a Ramam and the Maran Okay, where he talks, it's not quite about miracles, it's about Ruach HaKodesh. Okay, and maybe you replace it this uh, in your share, maybe you reference this Ramam, but he talks about Ruach HaKodesh. Okay, so this is in the second book, chapter 45. Okay, so I'm going to read you with them, I'm gonna, it's, you know, not that long, okay, but I'm going to read a little bit. 
So it says like this, um, the first degree of prophecy. Okay, so he's talking about, this is a chapter on the degrees of prophecy. The ten levels or so of prophecy. So the first level of prophecy, he says, not quite prophecy, it's Ruach HaKodesh, divine assistance. So the first degree of prophecy consists in the divine assistance which is given to a person and induces and encourages him to do something good and grand. Okay, e.g., for example, to deliver a congregation of good men from the hands of evildoers, to save one noble person, but to bring happiness to a large number of people. Okay. He finds in himself, this is the person who has this Rafako, that she finds in himself the cause that moves and urges him to do this deed. This degree of divine influence is called the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, Rafako, right. Now he says like this This faculty did not cause any of the above named persons to speak on a certain subject. It's like not a Navi, he's not speaking. For it only aims at encouraging the person who possesses it to action. It does not encourage him to do everything, but only to help either a distinguished man or a whole congregation when oppressed, or to do something that leads to that end. So it's saying is, even a person who has this divine assistance, it doesn't help them do everything, but it's to do something which is really important. Okay, to help a distinguished man, a whole congregation when they're oppressed, something, something like that. Just as not all who have a true dream are prophets, so it cannot be said of everyone who is assisted in a certain undertaking as in the acquisition of property or of some other personal advantage, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him or that the Lord was with him or that he performed his actions by the Holy Spirit. You don't say whenever a person is successful in a monetary venture, you say, oh, Hashem was helping me, right? We only apply such phrases to those who have accomplished something very good and grand or something that leads to that end, okay? For example, the success of Yosef in the house of the Egyptian, that was a monetary success, but it led, which was the first cause, leading evidently to great events that occurred subsequently. Okay, so he's saying is that Yosef's success was an example, he's saying, of Ruach Kodesh. Yosef was monetarily very successful in the house of Potiphar. As we saw that Medrash was on that thing, it says Hashem Ito. And, but not every person that, that's very successful monetarily, do we say that's Ruach Kodesh? Right? Same success. But when we only say and we attribute that to Ruach HaKodesh, to divine assistance, when that leads to something very grand. And it was, this was the beginning of Yosef's rise to power, right? And uh, that led to something grand, ultimately. Right? So he's saying is, is that, that there is, he's talking about Hashem being involved in divine assistance in Ruach HaKodesh, helping a person. But he's saying is he's kind of talking about something like we're talking about is interpreting. It's not quite a miracle story, but it's interpreting events in the world. When you see a person being especially successful, he's saying, do we just say that that's how Hashem is assisting him? So it's saying it depends if there's. It seems like if it's a unique level of success and it's bringing about some great purpose, then we'll say that was divine assistance, right? So apparently, the same degree of success if it leads to nothing. If a guy just becomes a meteoric rise to, uh, I don't know, Jeff Bezos in Amazon, he's going to say, wow, God is helping him to do it. What, towards what end? Why in the world should we think that Akash Baruch is helping him to become so wealthy? What's the point? But if it's not Jeff Bezos, but it's Yosef Atzadik rising up into power and to becoming such a you know, powerful person, and then that's, we understand, that's so that we cannot see that as the Yad Hashem for a purpose. So I think that, that the, the, the takeaway from that is that when, Hashem, based upon these columns that we set down, is that Hashem in general, 
let's uh, set up his laws of nature. And these are the laws that he wants to operate in the universe. And for him to intervene, to miraculously, to assist, to change something, for the, it must be for a purpose. It has to be some objective, some end in sight. Why is Hashem doing that? He doesn't just... He doesn't want a disorderly universe. He wants a, or a, a universe which points to his chachma. But when there are times that, it's, that he deems necessary in order to save a great person, to save a congregation, to lead to some great desired end, then Hashem is, does change those laws. So therefore, when you see Yosef HaTzadik, you say, wow, look what it led to. But if Yosef HaTzadik didn't lead to anything, then you would have said, okay, so a lot of people become wealthy. That doesn't really indicate anything. So that, with that point in mind, I like to take, when it comes to similarly, I think we could gener- come back to miracle stories, is when you, thank you, when you, when you have a miracle, or if you see the, the Gemara presenting a story of a miracle, we have to ask ourselves, Hashem wants the laws of nature to be, uh, to be maintained? Is there a tzorach for a miracle? Is there a purpose? Is there a reason to think? Could we see? Now, it's not always evident. Obviously, this is a, a guideline. But think into it. Is, is it reasonable that, that, that there's a unique instance here where Hashem is breaking the laws which He generally maintains? And that's where to determine if, in fact, there's a miracle, it would seem to be is, that's a, something to think about. Is it a reasonable... That is it reasonable that there would be some sort of breach of the laws of nature here? And that's what I think maybe the Rashba sees, is why in the world do you need a river to have a conversation with Pinchas Ben Yair? Right? It could be that, again, maybe you come up with some explanations, and it was, you know, there was a miracle of the donkey talking to Balaam, and you know, that apparently was important to teach, to, to teach Balaam a lesson. But it could be as the Rashba sees, sees that just to have a miracle of a river having conversation with uh, with Pinchas Ben Yair, it seems to be un, uh, not uh, not reasonable. It's not clear to see a purpose. Why should there be a purpose? He's a smart person. Let him assist him in thinking about certain ideas, or let him teach ideas. But just to have to have an absolute breach of the laws of nature of just a river having conversation with a person, it just doesn't seem to be in line with any immediate purpose to have such a thing like that happen. And arguably, that's why he's saying is maybe there's a marshal must be it's teaching us something other than that. Okay, and I think that in general that when you see another example might be the case of well to my mind is like this there's certain certain stories like I'd say is like there's miracle stories and then there are stories which have miracles. Okay? Miracle story are stories which are altogether seem altogether crazy, altogether unnatural. And if you see a story like that, maybe like that case with the big wave of the sea, like Gemara like Babasra, a big wave which has fire on the tip of it, and then you take a stick and you hit it with the Kahashem goes on it, and then it stops it. This is like nothing natural sounding about the whole story. So, is it really necessary for Hashem to, to supervene the laws of nature in order to make a wave with a fire on top of it? And to, I mean, I don't know, maybe you could be creative and come up with some reason of why there is. But it seems to be when you have stories which are altogether not unnatural, then it's, it's, it goes against the premise that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants His laws of nature. And it doesn't, it's hard to argue that there's a purpose which necessitates having something crazy like that happen. Right? So if, 
Again, I'm not saying you could always figure out. Maybe you have to be creative into figuring out why it should be. And I think sometimes you have to. But at the same time, that's what your focus should be on. If you see a story, could I come up with a reason, a purpose, for this miracle to happen? Okay? Maybe in the story, maybe there's, is there Hatzala? Is someone being saved? Is there something important which is, being hap- which is happening? And if so, well then I can kind of see, oh, that makes sense that HaKadosh Baruch Hu would change his laws in order to bring about that purpose. But if there's nothing significant or important which is occurring, it's just some random crazy story, then it's hard to justify that the laws of nature would be changed for that, and therefore I think that would point in the direction of interpreting it metaphorically. So another example of that is, I think, in the Rosh Hashanah story. Rosh Hashanah coming out of the cave. And so first of all, Rosh Hashanah being finding a, a carob tree, and a tree, bush, whatever, carobs would be growing for him, and the stream of water. Does that seem to be a reasonable thing which would be necessary? Is there a tzoruch there? It would seem so, right? Rosh Hashanah is, after all, a great tzaddik. He's going to be killed by the Romans. If he doesn't get killed, he has to go into hiding. If he doesn't have anything to eat, he's going to die. So it's a great plan for him to go and hide away, but he needs food. That seems reasonable, that to save a great tzaddik, a great chacham, the, the whole Masorah is hinges, is a, someone like Rishon to save him and to give him a, law, a, a, you know, a miracle and to give him the carobs. It's not giving him anything extravagant, but to give him basic necessities. It didn't even give him clothing. He had to use his chachma to figure out a natural way to be able to keep the, his clothing. But to save him, that happened. But then when you see the rest of the story, and Rosh Hashanah comes out of the cave and he zaps, he looks at things and burns them up. So again, you have to figure out, think for yourself. But to me, is that really necessary? Is there a purpose why Hashem should do a miracle? To give him the power to zap things and to burn them? And light them on fire. On the contrary, he was punished and he threw him back into the cave. He says, go back to the cave for another year. Right? So it seems to, to hard to argue that there's a tzorach, there's a necessity for Hashem to breach the laws of nature in order to allow him to have powers to look at things and to burn them up and to incinerate them. Right? So therefore, when, uh, when, when I see a story like that, I'd think, well, maybe that's a metaphor. And it's interesting because I recently met a guy who is telling me that he's uh, he's Baal Tshuva, and he's a very yeshivish guy now, and he was telling me that he, he started off, he was um, you know, totally secular, he was like a composer for Broadway or whatever, and um, he says, but then he became from, and he was, he said, I was a flaming Baal Tshuva. He says, I was like the, the Shemba Yechai in the story of the thing. Whatever I would look at, I would burn up. You know, I gave my parents a hard time, I gave the whole world a hard time, you know. So that is interesting, because that's, that's the way I interpreted this, this um, you know, maybe this is like a, in parlance, I don't know if this is common for people to talk like that, but that's the way I'm interpreting that story, is that Rishon Yochai and his son were, left the world for 13 years. They transcended the depths of knowledge of Torah. And when they came back into the world, and, and they were living on almost nothing in their clothing, and, and they, they rose to, a, to a great heights of, uh, of human growth. And when they came back into the world, they couldn't relate to the plain person who's involved in their simple tasks. Right? What are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? I mean, okay. You know, they, they couldn't... They, they became... They grew in an abstract way, but then they became disconnected from people. And, and um, I'm interpreting that when they burn stuff up, it would mean like they would they break people down, they'd go after people, they destroy the world. That means they weren't able to 
function to integrate into society and in a way where basically when they interacted with people, they burned their stuff up. They destroyed them. They weren't, they're Bali Misora who are meant to be able to teach people, to be able to help people grow in their growth towards the Vodas Hashem and they're going and being destructive because they're too, they're too removed from people and they're not able to, they're, they're too attached to their ideas, to their high ideals and they're projecting their great level onto the lower people. And then they had to go back into tshuva and go for a year into the cave. And then finally, when they came out again, then even his son seemed to be, seemed to not be perfect in this, but Roshim had a story with the, um, with the two, the two Hadassim, the two piles of Hadassim, it was for Kavod Shabbos, and then Roshim was teaching his son, look how great they are. They're doing this work for the sake of Kavod Shemayim. So it seems to be is that people are, yes, they're attached to the physical, but they're directing their physical towards uh, Kavod Anonik Shabbos. So the, there was a lesson for them to learn that not everyone is as great as you, Roshim Echai, and uh, Raza Roshim. But at the same time, they had to internalize to learn how to see the world from other people's perspective and to appreciate other people's level who are not as high as them. So, fine. So that's the, the, you can look into that story some more. But basically, the point is, the miracle, I'm saying, is it seems to me unreasonable to interpret that there is a purpose for Hashem to break the laws of nature in order to make him zap the power from the eyes, and therefore I'm interpreting that as emotion. Yeah. In terms of the point about the, the Rashi said by the river, that, mm-hmm. um, that rivers do stop occasionally, maybe it was the timing or something like that, you know? Yes. Is the goal there just that, in theory, a bigger breach, mm-hmm. to have a bigger purpose, a more wider-scale mm-hmm. result, so that, like, yeah. that makes it requisite, then like over here would it be a value to say that maybe God didn't zap a character in existence, maybe it's yeah, okay, so, so yeah, let's get to that. Okay, so let's get to that second part. We'll, we'll get, take that up now. Okay, so again, the, my first step is though, is that is there a purpose for a miracle altogether? That I think is the first question. And sometimes, there, again, sometimes it's clear that there is. Like saving a Rishon it seems to me clear there's a purpose to save him. Right? A wave which has white fire on top of it. Oh, by the way, that story, I didn't mention, but that, that story with a wave and a white fire and all that, so I just looked in The Juggler and the King. I mean, the Gra has uh, interprets that as a marshal for a person on his path through life on a boat is a reference to a person's trials through the world, and a wave with a fire on top is a marshal for the Yetzirah, and the fire is like, the Yetzirah is depicted often as a fire, and it's white, and it shows like it's it disguises itself as pure, and that's what the Yetzirah does. It tries to trick us into pure as being white and innocent and pure, and then hitting it with the shame with a stick, which says, Hey, Masham, is basically something like, more elaborate than this, but if through the ideas of Hashem and the promises which Hashem had to redeem Kali Yisrael and to uh, eradicate the power of the Yetzirah, that's the way a person could overcome the Yetzirah is through uh, knowledge about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So basically he takes it, that and many, all the stories there in the story of Baba there as Mishalim, for which are totally not to the Kamashmala in any way, the wave and the river and all that. So again, uh, that's, you can look in the, the book is, uh, I recommend the book, it's a really interesting book. Uh, you know, it does a lot of, it takes a lot of Mishalim and, you know, I, I think it was well written by, it was written by uh, the, the Rosh Hashiva of, uh, yeah, of his Rosh Hashiva of right? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, just look at it again. It's, it's, you know, it's exciting. Yeah, so the point is, again, that's my first step, is is there 
a reason? Could you interpret? Again, not always obvious, but is there some purpose which you could see for Hashem making such a breach in the law's nature? That's step one. Okay. The second step is, assuming that you could see a breach, you could see a reason, there is a tzorach for there to be a breach in the laws of nature, because for a salvation of some tzaddik or whatever the case may be, then I think you get into the second question, is, is what exactly what Moshe is talking about. Is there a way to interpret it, it is as like a less than absolute open breach of the laws of nature? So like in the Rashba's case, so it's, the Rashba seemingly is saying to allow Pinchas ben Yair to accomplish this great mitzvah of Pidgeon Shvuyim, in the Rashba's mind, that's reasonable to uh, breach the laws of nature. But then at the same time, the Rashba is saying, one second, is it necessary to have a nes nistar, a nes negla, like splitting the sea? Or one second, rivers, after all, sometimes stop. And therefore, what he's doing, what the Rashba is doing, is he's thinking and seeing. Maybe we could interpret it in a way which is miraculous, but in a more hidden type of a miracle on Ashkafa. And it would seem to me that's taking off of that Rashba, that seems to me a good idea. Is that even if you see, given that we know Hashem wants the laws of nature to be intact and only overrides them for a purpose, let's see if there's a purpose. And now we also know, even when there is a purpose, we know to Derech Hashem to try to minimize the change in the laws of nature. Okay, fine, so is there a way to interpret it in a way which minimizes the breach? And that's what the Rosh was doing. And it seems to me that's a good, a good idea. So to take an example, so back to that Ramban, the, uh, the, the Medrash Rabbah, which had, you know, Yosef HaTzadik, and, um, and the, um, basically what happened, he says that his master saw him, that he was whispering, and he was, uh, says, here, give me hot water, and sure enough, there was hot water, give me warm water, and then enough, there was hot warm water, until he saw the Shechina, uh, the master saw the Shechina, and then he, uh, he realized it was from Hashem. So the Ramban says like this, and this is interesting, because it's Ramban interpreting a Madrash, and you'll see he interprets it there, like in a sense as a, a Derech Mashal, but not quite. Okay? A sense metaphorical, but not quite. He says, V'inyan, Ki Adonav Mitzri, Lo Yada Hashem. So this Mitzri, he didn't know Hashem, so Amru Kibir also had Sachasa when he saw Yosef's great success. And that, again, that was the same example the Ramam had of the uh, the Rach Kodash. Apparently Yosef had great, great success. So when he saw this, when this master saw it, he didn't know about Hashem. So he said, He thought that he was doing magic, witchcraft. Kasher Bivnei Arza. Because that was after all what he knew about him. Mitzrayim. He says, What are you doing? You're bringing witchcraft to Mitzrayim? That's that's what he knew of. This is his mentality. And when he sees Yosef's great rise to great success, he suggested it must be this is uh, witchcraft. Ad Until ultimately he saw that it was from Hashem. Either he had a, a dream that he saw that Hashem was with him. That's because the Gemara said, the, the, the Medrash said, Ad Omed or something. So he says either he had a dream, or maybe there was some sort of a cloud which appeared to him for the sake of the kavod, for the tzaddik, so that he wouldn't... So that, so again, he's saying is that the, when, the, when the Medrash is saying that Yosef was whispering, and Yosef said, and the master said, give me hot water, and then there was hot water, and give me warm water, and there, sure enough, there was warm water, what the Ramban, it seems to me, is interpreting it that that was the perception of Potiphar. That's the way the Mitzri interpreted it, that he was a Mitzri, 
who was steeped in the, uh, all this witchcraft magic and all that. And when he saw Yosef's great success, he figured it must be he's doing magic. And that's what he interpreted as. It must be Yosef's whispering. It must be there's magic. It must be, right? So the, the story of basically, which the Medrash sounds like it's saying is, he'd say, give me hot water, and poof, there's hot water. The Ramban's interpreting that it doesn't literally mean that. It means that the, it's, it's creating a, a scene to depict the way the Mitzri interpreted what was going on. And Yosef's success, he interpreted it as being magic until there was Ashkacha from Hashem that made it clear to the Mitzri that it wasn't. That he saw that it was from Hashem. And the Ramban says, the Kabbat HaTzadik. Because arguably, if Yosef's going to be interpreted as being a, 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 a magician, a magic man of Mitzrayim, that's the antithesis of what Yosef stands for. And that's not what he wants to convey. So for the cover of the tzaddik, Hashem made it clear to Potiphar that on the contrary, this was not, this was something other. This was Hashem, and arguably Yosef explained it to him, and there was, must have been a limud. But basically it was a miracle in order to remove the perception of Yosef as being another magician of Egypt. But on the contrary, to, to teach, to show to, 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 the, to the Mitzri and to associate Yosef with the Kosh Baruch Hashem Ita. So, was it miraculous? In a certain sense, it was, because the Pasuk says, and that was the example of the Ramam saying, and there was a divine intervention to lead to the success of Yosef, which was unexplainable by ordinary uh, means, but not that it happened literally as it's depicted, that magically a hot <laughs> cup of hot water appeared, but he was just very, very successful monetarily, in a way which is striking. And the Medrash is depicting it as a, as a miracle happening in order to convey the sentiment of, you know, the way that the great success appeared to the Mitzri. So I think it's a good example of the Ramban who's taking the Medrash and he's going with this like middle approach where he's, he is learning that there was something miraculous here, but at the same time he's looking to minimize the miracle because after all, the Torah doesn't describe any open miracle like that happening. There was this described which plain Shah means he was very and that's thing the Ramban says at first that it means he was very, very successful. So that's what he's learning. That's what it all really means. It just is bringing as elucidating a further idea through this uh, through the Majrish. And that's the wrong way the Ramban is learning what the Majrish is doing. It's not trying to tell you Pshat, this is what happened. Okay? So with that idea, I think maybe we could explain the the story of Marukva that way also. Okay, so that was the story of the uh, the Tztaka. And I think so, I don't remember who, but someone in my shir had this idea. It's uh, one of the fellows. So that basically, when Marukva was running away from this uh, ani, so he went into the to the oven. So it seems like he was, at least from the Gemara story, that he was willing to be Mosinafesh, or certainly to endure great, great pain and suffering because of he wouldn't want to embarrass this uh, ani, and he was learning from that from Tamar. So that's an interesting limit in his own right that that's appropriate. But I'm not going to take that up now. But that he apparently held that this was an appropriate thing to do, to put himself in great pain or risk of his life because he wanted to be involved in the highest level of tzedakah, right? And you could understand, could you see there being a tzorach to save his life or to save him from great suffering miraculously to, to do so? It seemed to me that that seems reasonable. That's we're talking about a great tzaddik who is arguably going to die or suffer great, great pain and suffering because he's involved through doing a high-level mitzvah. And there's a something that sounds like the Pshat and the Gemara is that there was some sort of an ace, especially his wife said 
oh, don't feel bad that it happened to me and not to you because I have a greater zechus. So it certainly sounds from this story that there was some sort of uh, intervention to help them, right? To not be, uh, right? But then uh, one of the fellows pointed out is like it could be you could interpret it similarly as uh, to the Rashba, is that if the Rolling Mars says it was a swept out oven, it wasn't the, they wouldn't jump into a, a hot fire or flame, and a swept out oven, arguably sweep it out, and there's going to be in that type of oven, there are going to be other, certain spots which are hotter and other spots which are colder. And arguably your ability to make it in there is depends, all depends upon where you end up putting your feet down. And if you get a hot spot or you get a cold spot or you're standing on it or whatever, something which has recently been cooled down, I don't know, however it works out. But it's not necessarily miraculous, but it could be dependent upon chance factors which are out of your control. And the factors had it as such that his wife ended up finding the right spot and ended up being able to make it. And he wasn't able to make it. And it could be that's the saying is that Ashkacha that Tahar, that she was be able to do so, and not him, because her level of tzedakah was a salvation, which was, after all, for their great involvement in the Smith of tzedakah, and she was involved in a higher level, and there was a lesson it was to teach him and her about their, you know, about, the, about her level of tzedakah, and they both walked away learning a lesson from it. So again, it could be in that story, I would say that it seems reasonable, again, to interpret it as a miracle, but as more of an ace nistar you know, as a hidden miracle, because it doesn't seem necessary to, again, if they jumped into a flaming fire, then obviously it's a miracle. But at the same time, this, it is a hot oven, which is recently swept. It doesn't seem that it's necessary to interpret that as, you know, as a Chris Yamsen. Okay? Yeah, so I think that in general that's the case, as you were saying, Mimosha. Yeah, and if you could work out a character, maybe it happened to be a place where there was a character. Yeah, I mean, call it you know, sometimes you can work things out like that. It's nice to be creative. But yeah, I think, I think it's worthwhile trying to see if, given that, given that Hashem minimizes his miracles, it seemed to be wise for us to see if we could interpret it in a way, which we know that's my say Hashem, that he does things in general and he wants to accomplish his purpose by minimizing miracles. So therefore, if there's a way for us to interpret a story in a way which minimizes the miracle then why wouldn't we interpret that that's what HaKadosh Baruch did? Because after all, we know that's the Maaseh Hashem, that he does that. So that seems to be a reasonable uh, step. Okay. Fine. And then, then going back to the, uh, the other, to, to the, so, then, so that's the second, second type of thing. Again, so the first one is, is it, is it totally breach of laws of nature with no purpose? Metaphor. Breach of laws of nature with a purpose, but it could be interpreted in a metaphor, in a minimize the way, way, seems to be a good idea. But then it seems to me sometimes that's not possible. Okay? Seems to me. Sometimes the story, there is a purpose, and at the same time as there is a purpose, it doesn't seem, again, you could be creative, but it doesn't seem reasonable to interpret to be in a metaphorical type, or even a minimized type of way. So for example, the story of Lishabal Kanafayim, Right? It's hard for me to come up with, and maybe someone else knows chemistry or something, or some other subject better than me, but it doesn't seem to me reasonable to say that tefillin turning into a dove could happen through anything but an open miracle or something to that effect. Right? I mean, the tefillin, my tefillin are nothing like a dove, I don't know about yours. But this seems to be an instance of Elisha, who is this great tzaddik, he was being Moser Nafshel, Akedash Hashem, to do the mitzvah of, of, of tefillin, right? Is a high level. He's a model of the mitzvah of tefillin in other aspects. 
and he's going to be killed. He got caught, and he's going to be killed. But now, obviously, and this is an interesting point: is there are a lot of there are a lot of great tzaddikim who have been killed, right? Rabbi Akiva and all the surahs And again, I, I don't want to just want to clarify. I don't mean to imply that we could figure out when Hashem will or won't do a miracle, and to say just because there are many people who we if there were a miracle for Rabbi Akiva, it would have been reasonable for us and we would have understood it. It says, "Oh, Hashem does miracles to save His great tzaddikim," but that doesn't mean we understand the chesbonos or chesbaracho and to say when Hashem will or won't do a miracle. So it seems to be on the surface there are times where you could, obviously not conclusively, but reasonably say that's not this doesn't seem to be any reason why there should be a miracle for. Yeshua to have you know fire burning up things with his eyes, but that doesn't mean we could always figure out when Hashem does and doesn't do a miracle. But to to have when there is like the example that Ramban said and is to for Hatzalah of a tzaddik certainly seems to be a reasonable instance to say you know um, seems to be a reasonable thing that there would be a tzarich and at the same time doesn't seem to me to be interpretable in a loose, you know, nasinister type of a way. So it seems to me that it's reasonable to say that there is a miracle, in which case, it, we should try to think about what idea we can learn from that. Yes, Ayala, you had a question? Yes, in the case of the stone turning into a dove, if, if you were to argue that the, to minimize that as a miracle, that he was able to do misdirection and produce the dove in a way that a magician okay. would, Okay, that's what I was saying. Um, you know, maybe some people are well versed in others, other fields than. Uh, perhaps. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And doves are doves are big for Benyamin has doves, right? Doves are big for magic tricks, right? Okay. Yeah, standard. I mean, the Gemara asked, "Why do you choose doves?" It didn't say because that's what magicians use, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Look, again, I'm not, as I said, I'm, I'm more than willing. I think it's a good idea to try to explain these things in that type of a way. Sometimes it, you know, you have to be creative sometimes. But I'm not, see, I'm not, a, I'm not, to me, I don't mind saying that there's a, that Hashem changed laws of nature. After all, He, changed, he made the Yechiris Yamsuf. You're going to try to change that. I know a lot of people try to explain all the Makos and everything, but we don't believe that the miracles are impossible. We believe Hashem does do miracles and can do miracles. So, I, I, I think in general he tries to minimize them. So if you could find a way to do it, which isn't too unreasonable, you have to judge each one independently and see whether it's, you know, yeah. A lot of these miracles are happening to one person. Yes. How do they find a way into Arkansas? Oh, how did they find a way? I mean, I guess if there's a limud, I mean, that's what I was going to get to in a second, but arguably the miracle, as we saw before, miracles are mechaivim and limud. And trying to, what do you learn? You could learn about Ma'asei Hashem when Hashem does do a miracle, right? And, and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, as such, I don't see why they would necessarily keep it a secret. So arguably, Elisha maybe first of all, Elisha, no, I'm sorry, Elisha Balkanafayim, maybe people saw it. And even if so, arguably, he explained, he told people, I don't think it's a secret that it happened. You can't keep it a secret. Because it's Kedush Hashem, Kedush you make a bracha, Yeah, I mean, why? Yeah, yeah, right, why, right. Why should it be a secret? Yeah, he told people he wrote it down. He told people however it is. Seems so. You know, and uh, that in that case, I don't see it reasonable. Maybe some other stories would be harder to explain that way, but I, I don't know. You know, but in general, I'd say why not? Why should it be a big secret? You know, yeah. Along the lines of trying to minimize the miracle, even if it is an actual 
also mentions the Ruach Kadim Aza, like the big wind came and then suddenly there was dry land. Maybe the reason the Pasuk mentioned that wind is to minimize the miracle of creation. Yeah, well, the thing is like this. There's two different points. One is to make a miracle seem natural. But then there's a different point is, I don't think Kriyas Yamsuf is going to seem natural, even if there's a wind, because winds just don't do that. But that is just saying is, even when Hashem does a miracle, which is clearly a miracle, He utilizes forces of nature to do so. So He utilized the wind. It just, statistically, a wind like that, while it might be possible, is out of the reasonable, that never happens, you know, and it's clearly openly a miracle, but at the same time, it didn't just, like, maybe, maybe Marcus Bechoros was unique in that everyone just dropped that. But typically, even when Hashem does do a miracle, He does it via some sort of force of nature. But I don't think that makes it into a Nes Nistar, you know? No, not that it's a Nes Nistar, but that certain aspects of it... Yes, are natural. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. natural. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yes, agreed. Yes, for sure. He uses the, he uses the laws of nature, which is in line with that point. It's his minimization, in, in a sense, a minimization of the nace. Yes. yes. Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay, yes. All right. Um, the other thing that, that I guess... Not say like, like a given story that let's say you go through these principles that you, you explain and you conclude that it has to have been a miracle. Okay. But could you also say, or would you not say that maybe the story just itself wasn't a true event? That it was like in the story it wouldn't have been a miracle, but the story itself, in its entirety, oh. was just was, a, was just to bring out a certain idea, but it right. didn't actually happen. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't like. I don't like that. I mean, it depends. Like you're talking about, especially a lot of these stories are talking about like real people, real Bali Masora, like Rishon Bayichai, Rikiva. I mean, Elisha you know, And just to say, like, like there's such a thing of if you make up a story with names of people we never heard of, and I don't know, like there's some of those stories in um, in Baba Basu, the juggler and the king are these random names you never heard of. They're just made, they seemingly are made up. But if you're telling a real story about real people, just to say the whole thing was invented, it seems to me a stretch of the imagination. It seems to me the real, that's coming from a place of someone who doesn't want to believe miracles. You know, and I, given that, it doesn't, why, why do that? I'm not saying he couldn't do that, but if it's teaching you an idea, what's the idea that it's teaching you? That Hashem will do a miracle to save someone like Elisha Bakhan Fayim. Oh, well, once that's an idea, then why not say that's what actually happened? Like, what idea is it trying to teach you if not that Hashem does a miracle in those circumstances? In which case, what's the point of saying that it's a... Uh, right? So, again, I, I don't know. I don't like that. I'm not saying never. Maybe there's a place for something like that. But, again, I, I don't see the, the need for that given that we, you know... Yeah, but maybe sometimes. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to open up a path. Obviously, there's... You know, I like taking these types of stories. If anyone has any that they're interested, they come across, I'm, lot, I'm happy well, to hear them. Given the idea that you're trying to avoid, to some extent, the idea that there is a, you know, Yeah, I'm not I'm trying to avoid that. I'm, I'm not, I don't think that's the idea to avoid. If there's a tzorach, then Hashem does a miracle. You know, if, if it needs to be, if there's no way to do, save Elisha, I'm going to find him in a way other than an open blade miracle. 
I mean, it would be nice to try to avoid situations like that happening, but Elisha was such a tzaddik who didn't deserve to die at this point, and the only way to save him was to help a miracle, then I don't, uh, what's, uh, why is, uh, it doesn't seem that the Rishonim hold, Hashem never, doesn't do miracles like that, it seems they say Hashem does do miracles like that. So uh, why not? Why, you know, we're not, that's what I'm saying, there's like a type of a uber-rational type of thing. No, and everything has to be natural or whatever, that's not, it doesn't seem to the Torah holds by. I really look at the Chumash, there's a lot of miracles going on, and it seems to be that, yes, there's a drop-off of miracles, but at the same time, not everything in the world is a miracle, but these are unique, isolated instances which are in Tzorach. And the lesson, I think, is to look into the Tzorach and try to see, wow, we can learn about Maisei Hashem, that he does a miracle in order to save a tzaddik, because a tzaddik, after all, is part of bringing about the purpose of Kiddush and Shemayim in the world, and Klai Yisrael is bringing about that purpose, and that's more significant in terms of, the, in terms of God's plan in the universe than the laws of nature running all the Part of God's plan is to have the world recognize Machas Hashem, not just to have fixed laws of nature running forever, but it's to bring about there's an objective in man and recognizing God. So if it needs the Kriyasi Amsaf to do, bring that about, then so be it. And if he needs to save Elisha Lachna Fine to bring that about, so be it. Yes, Tamar. Yeah. Yes. 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 That's true. I think you're right. If something is a metaphor, then the lesson, the limud, is what's it a metaphor for? Because then you're saying is the story didn't happen. It's just a wave with the fire on it. You say, well, what does the wave represent? What does the fire represent? What does the stick represent? It's like you're not you're not interpreting it in the framework of Maisei Hashem doing miracles. You're interpreting it as what's it a metaphor for? It could be a metaphor for anything. Who knows? But if you're interpreting it as a story that happened and Hashem breached the laws of nature or minimally breached the laws of nature for a certain purpose, well, then we can learn about Maisei Hashem because we're learning that it actually happened and Hashem breached the laws and there's a lesson about that. So yeah, it, it directs your mind. And that's why I think that's... that's why whenever I see these stories, that's the first <coughs> question I, I ask. Is, did this happen or did it not happen? Did something happen or is this totally a metaphor? If it happened, then what will you learn from it? If it didn't happen, then what are we going to learn from it? It's like, it's hard to think about those simultaneously. Those are two different... And I'm not saying you can't be a misupak. Sometimes you don't know. But it seems in your thought process of approaching it, it seems that's a critical question you have to ask yourself because your whole thought process is going to diverge depending on which way you're going to go. So sometimes you could try them both out, but there seems to be like a qualitative split in your interpretation of these stories, you know? Yes, all right. Um, are you saying that... Um that the flat is, is there a rule that miracles only occur whether it's Torah or Prasadigam, or are you just saying that just because of the given stories? No, I'm saying that because of the Mephoshim. That was the share last time, I don't know if you heard it. But that's, yeah, that seems to be Hashem does, does miracles, I mean, it's I mean, exactly with the rules, but Sadiqim, Hatzalah, to make his name known, but just to have miracles, like whatever, those, the, that, that was the sources we did last time, that Hashem doesn't do miracles in general. General Hashem wants the laws of nature to exist. Sort of. He says the miracles in the, in the Midbar were done in Neitzarach. Yeah, I mean, but we, those are what we did, we talked about that at length last time. That was the show last time. Yeah. Okay, so now, just to back to the Lisha Wakanafayim story a little bit more, and then I still explain the story about Roshulman Lazar with the whole, uh, you know, his detective work there, right? And his fat not dissolve it or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so just a little issue about kind of fire. So I just wanted to say one thing about the, um, you know, that he said the the the, the Yonah, the Kanfe Yonah, the wings of Yonah, right? So why did he say that? 
did he know that there was going to be a miracle that was going to turn into a dove? I mean, we don't rely on a miracle. It doesn't seem like he necessarily... Uh, how, do we, how do we interpret that? Did he know that? So uh, I, I don't think you have to say that he knew. He was, he was like calling for a Yona and saying, God, Yona, try to, you know, or whatever. Why is he saying Yona? So the Gemara says is that just like the wings of a dove protect it, so too the missiles protect us. Okay? So Elishabal Kenafayim was giving his life. Al-Kedosh Hashem. As far as he knew it, he was going to die. They were going to kill him. They caught him. He was caught. He was doing the mitzvah, risking his life, Al-Kedosh Hashem, and it turned out he was caught. And he may have known a miracle may happen, but a miracle may not happen. It didn't happen for Rabbi Akiva and for the other Suryamachas. I don't think we could know that he knew for certain a miracle would happen. So he was, as far as he knew, about to give his life. And classically, right, and there are many stories, and Rabbi Kiva, I believe, is one of them, is uh, when Jews give most an effort, they say, right? So the idea is, it's like where, it's like at that moment, that, that was, and that was Rabbi Kiva was, it says he was waiting for this moment to be most an Hashem. There's a moment where a person is dying, and it's, imp- it's valuable for the moment, person at that moment to bring to his mind's eye the concept for what he's giving his life for. To be able to experience this, you know, terrible murder, but to focus himself on the ideals for which he's giving, for Achtas Hashem, to think about the ideas. And that's the proper mindset which he wants to be in, and to grow. Like Rabbi Kiva was looking to do this mitzvah, the person, the, the person's neshama grows through the experience of being most of this greatest mitzvah of Kedosh Hashem, which Rabbi Kiva says he was waiting his whole life to be able to do it. So at that moment, you don't want to be, um, you know, whatever else you're doing, but you want to be thinking and put it in the right state of mind. So that's the minog, I guess, or whatever it is, of saying Shema Yisrael Shem is to, to think of our, the, the foundations upon which we're, uh, our whole life is based and why we're giving our life. So he was giving his life for the mitzvah of tefillin, for mitzvahs. So it could be is that, and, and the mitzvahs basically is uh, protect Chal Yisrael. And as the Ram talks about it, is when he says that the mitzvahs protect us, it's not that it protects us physically, but it has magical powers, but on the contrary, the mitzvahs protect us by keeping our ideas, our mind. He talks about it by tefillin, it's just that it protects us from chet. The mitzvahs protect the person from sinning because they keep our mind's eye on the proper ideas and always thinking about Kaddish Baruch Hu. So when he's giving his life for the mitzvah of tefillin, and he's about to give his life, he wants to, he's mentioning the dove, and saying, what's in your hands a dove? It's bringing to mind the idea that, why is he giving his life? What's he doing? He's being Moser as nefesh for the sake of the mitzvahs which are protecting him, and which are, which are allowing him to be able to keep his mind's eye focused upon knowledge of God throughout his life. So it's like him saying the dove, it could be he knew there was a possibility of a dove, I don't know, maybe of a dove, turning to a dove, but I'm saying more Mustafa is that he was he was bringing to his mind, and that's why I think, I think it's saying there's a Pasuk there which compares the Chai to Adav, but he's bringing the idea of what he's giving his life for to his mind's eye at that moment, and dying with that thought in mind. And then, sure enough, the miracle happened that it did turn into a dove. But I'm not say, saying that, not, you don't have to learn that he was ordering a dove, but it was rather that was, it's, it's a lesson in how a person functions at that moment, a person like Elisha at that moment is functioning by getting his mind upon the world of ideas and away from the fear of getting killed, by, but thinking rather about the, the purpose of for what he's giving his life. Yes? Um, I feel like Elisha was saying, 
all of those things working out, why can't we say that, like, he has this pillow on, the Roman guard sees him, he's being, like, he's running away, the guy's trying to catch up. Um, and at that last moment, for some reason, he stops running and basically is willing to engage with the Roman guard. Why can't we say that his film was in his hands, but so was his up? Like, maybe he stopped running because, like, the miracle was there was a gun nearby, and he just sort of put all of it in his hands. And so he's saying now, what's in my hands are the wings of the dog. And, and all of these ideas can still be true without having to say his film magically transformed into the dog. The miracle was the guy was distracted by the dog that sort of... But isn't the guy, the guy is, the law is that you can't wear tefillin. He right. sees him running with tefillin. Right. He catches him, and then he says the dove, and then he doesn't look and say what's behind the dove, and he just... No, because, because the, the guard doesn't know he had the dove in his hands with the tefillin. He says it's a dove, and all of a sudden he opens his hands with the dove flies. So a dove flew into his hands at the moment he was taking off his tefillin? Like, how did the dove get there? I'm saying that's completely a miracle. Like, they're just... Oh, that was a miracle. Oh, I see. And then, okay. I mean, then you. And so then you'd say the miracle was that the dove flew there at the time, and then the miracle is also that the Roman guard didn't, whose job was to get Jews who weren't filmed, didn't look in his hands afterwards to. Right. Or just taking yeah. that moment to sort of get the soul behind his back. Okay. Okay. Or like, uh, yeah, let's say sleight of hand or something. Right. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, to me, I, it's fine. You could, you could say that. You know, that's, that's fine. I don't really, uh, I don't see the need for that, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that either. It just seems to me that there's less of a need than to say that Tefillin turns me to a dove. There's less of a need to say that. Okay, fine. Yeah, I, I, the, my point is, to me, it doesn't matter that much. Well, the ideas you said, anyways, the ideas are all the same. Anyways, the ideas are Hashem is intervening in the laws in order to help the tzaddik. Is if it's reasonable to if those are reasonable way of learning it, then call it a vote. I'm not sure that you know there's a balance between how much do you have to stretch to interpret it that way, and how much do you want to try to minimize the ace. But look, if Hakadosh Baruch Hu could do it, and that if there is a natural way to do it, then great, you know. But I, I think to me the the takeaway from the story doesn't really change that much. So you know, but Hashem could do that. He could make a change into a dove if he wanted to, right? You would agree with that. Right, but we don't say that. Like, <coughs> where we try to say, even though God could. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Good. Okay. So then the story, uh, the last story, is the one with uh, Rishon and Lazar, right? Where he was trying to find the uh, the robbers, right? Rosh Hashanah. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so the question there is, I guess, if we're taking our approach here, what was the tzorach to have his fat not decay, right? I mean, if, if we want to say that, if it was, well, I guess the question, is there a tzorach or is it not a tzorach? Did it literally happen or did it not literally happen? If it didn't literally happen, then it's a muscle for something. If it did literally happen, then what in the world would be a tzorach to have his fat not decay? It's a little strange, right? Again, it's also hard to me, it's like the, the story sounds so literal up until this point. To say that the story is a metaphor or just all of a sudden then there's this metaphor built mixed into the story is possible, but it just seems to be it seems like it, it is in the middle of an actual story going on, you know. There's also the idea of using his fat as a indication that his, his intuition was correct. It's a little strange. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, so he got the surgery to test this out. Yeah, right, to test it out. Yeah, go take his fat and put it in. Because he was saying, my, so my fat isn't going to rot because I'm certain my fat's not going to rot because it's solid. It's, you know, it's good, it's spot on. Extreme. It's extreme. Well, he did go into a sterile room. 
I took uh, medicine, you know, before, uh, it's marble. Some science, yeah, it's marble, and he had medicine, a sleeping medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so this is, um, so we were doing this on Shabbos a few months ago, so we, we, this is what we came up with, but, uh, you know, you take it or leave it, okay? So, um, so basically, he was put in the situation, where they were, they were basically killing Jews, right? They're killing Jews as being robbers. And there were quotas. You had to find however many Jews there were a week, a day, however it was. And this person who, who Elizabeth Shum bumped into was somehow randomly picking Jews and getting them killed. <coughs> and Elizabeth Shum's shita, which other Balachachmeh sort of disagreed with him, was that, that there's, we should use our Chachma to try to figure out who's actually the criminal. Okay? And not only that, was it his shita, he held that he had this unbelievable gut feeling, this intuition, this strong ability to read people and to be able to tell, like a Sherlock Holmes type of sense, to be able to determine who's truly a good, uh, the, the robbers and who's uh, just the good, the good people. Okay? And he had great confidence in his ability to sense people out. He had a methodology, and the Gemara describes his methodology to some degree, it says he woke people up in the morning and he tried to figure out were they sleeping, were they nosing, or whatever. I don't, I don't think that's the full story, but I think that's part of the type of things he did. He had ways of spying people out, seeing are their head nodding down, what are they doing. You know, he had a whole way of being able to figure these things out. And he held that given that we have a quota, that they're forcing us to basically give Jews over, and given that he had the capacity to convince himself, he called them Vadaim, so he held that he was, he was certain about these things, that he was able to read people in this uh, great way, he was basically giving these people over for death. He held better that than to randomly pick them or to have the guy randomly pick them. He held, this is the way, so he said, Kotsim ani machalam in I'm removing the thorns from the karam. But apparently the other Chachmes are held that it wasn't appropriate. Maybe, arguably, they didn't trust his intuition. They just held, look, you're just guessing or whatever, you might think you're confident, but you're overconfident. You don't really have the capacity to do such a thing. And if you don't really have the capacity to do it well, then you're just being most Kal Yisrael. You don't have a right to do that. And let Hashem take who He wants to take. But you don't have a right to get involved. And even Rabbi Shuvim Karcha, the Chachmim Sorah, were critical of Him. And it was a debate. It was, uh, he was not a popular Rebbe Sorah, as you'll see the later parts of the story. He, he had his opposition. But, uh, but not only, it's one thing to have the other Balei Masur argue with them, but then you see this, uh, this other guy, the, the cleaner's guy, he also started calling him Chomes Ben Yayin. So his, um, his reputation as a Balei Masorah was on the line. People were, were questioning him as being a Balei Masorah, and that's important for Klai Yisrael. We don't have many great Balei Masorah. Like, again, if you look later in the stories, he was the, amongst the greatest. He was with Rabbi Shur Yochai in the cave. And Rabbi Shur says, the whole world is being supported for me and for you. We're like the greatest of the people in the world. And he was, again, the Gemara says he was greater than Rabbi Hironasi. So he was like uh, of the greats. And the Misorah is maintained through people like him. And we, we, we learn the Gemara and all the, all, everything we learn about is based upon the people like him being able to be passing down the Misorah and for us to learn from their halachos and from their... Their hashkafas and all everything which is the Masorah is the, the critical role that the Chachmei Masorah have to the perpetuation of Torah 
and of Kiddush Hashem throughout the generations is, uh, is, is great. And as such, and I, I found this in other Agatatas also, it seems to me like you could talk about saving a person, a miracle to save a person from dying, like a case of Rishon Malachai being able to have food so he's able to feed himself, or saving Elish Vakanafayim. But then you could talk about saving the reputation of Baal Masora. If a Baal Masora is alive, but he's not respected, but the people look at him as being nothing, then he's, in a sense, he dies to the Masora. He's no longer going to be viewed by the Am as, a, as, a, as another link in the chain of the Masora, and no one's going to be able to learn from him. So it could be is that he held that he, he, had, he had great confidence, in his, and that's what he said, in his stomach. He said, in my stomach, my stomach, I'm happy. If even my, even if my, even the, the case, with, and that Kovas, that cleaner, he held that that guy, the fact that this guy called him, Chometz Ben the plain, simple guy calls him that, it must be this guy has something, he doesn't like him. And if he doesn't like him, it's because his job is, after all, sniffing out these criminals. So this guy, that was his intuition. But he also knew that he, he, he held, maybe he was emotionally involved, because after all, the guy came and insulted him. So it could be he wasn't so sure about that one, and that's why he had his regrets. But it turns out he was correct. That's what they said, that he was, uh, that guy was a real Russia. So he held that that was the one case where he felt like maybe he, was, uh, he didn't do it properly. But even that one, it turns out he was correct. So... He, but he thought that, so it could be that this thing is that he, he knew his place in the Masora, and he knew that it was important for people to view him as a, as a great one, one of the Chachmei Masora. But at the same time, he knew that people weren't. There was a trend in people who were starting to undermine him. After all, many of the greats of the Masora did reject him or, or, or argued on him. But it's one thing to argue on him, and it's another thing to not learn from him. So it could be that this surgery... He basically deemed it necessary to basically make an indication to the Am that he's his stomach. That's what I'm saying. The stomach of the fats, I think he's just saying, is like that's, even in modern parlance, it's like he's got a gut feeling. Like he's got a good gut. There's like, that's a muscle for, I don't know why, maybe I, I try to look into it a little bit, but I don't know, I'm sure it's based on some ancient belief about the gut is the part of your intuition is tied to your gut or your stomach, whatever it is. But the point is, is that that he, he was trying to, the, the nace there was showing the world, showing Amisa, that he was, his gut was accurate. And there was a nace to protect his gut. He was saying, I know my gut is not going to decay. Which means that there was basically a nace to convey the fact that he was a, he, he was legit. His argument, and that he was, he was le- even though he was giving Jews over, but he was saving Jews. Again, this is critical, because and even his job, his job at, save, at killing these guys is saving all the other guys, is saving all the people who would have otherwise been chosen randomly. So there's Ashkacha to Ornes, I don't know, maybe it was, however, maybe you could come up with different, um, you know, semi-natural explanations of that. But basically what I'm saying is that it was, that Tzorach here is to maintain Roshim Rosh in his position as, to, as doing this important job for Kali Yisrael, and as a Baal Masora. And that's something which seems to me to be of vital importance for the continuance of the Masora. And I think that's another type of Masora, which is you can learn the Maisei Hashem. It, certainly, whether you like this particular one or not, but if the Maisei Hashem are going to be sufficient to save the life of a Baal Masora, if that Masora is sufficient to breach the laws of nature, 
I don't. It seems to me equally important to maintain the the role of a Baal Masora of one of the Baal Masora. Yeah. I mean, it seems like if it had failed, it would have been harmful. I mean, depending how well known it was that it was happening, as it was happening, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. But assuming that it's kind of known what was going on, is the interpretation that he was relying on his knowledge of the way he's in work that he assumed it would actually play out with the mace? Or it's a good question. I don't know. I hear you. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't public. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. He wasn't going to publicize it if it didn't work out. I don't know. I hear what you're saying. Maybe, yeah, maybe he held that this was important. He held that his reputation as it was on the line and it was necessary. It, was, it could be he could judge such a thing. I don't know. You know. Well, the thing is, Moshe's saying is if people would know about it, then it could be there would be something to lose. Well, look, maybe he held that he would cease. If he, maybe he held that if he wouldn't have that, maybe he would uh, change his plan. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I yell. No, that's why he went to a sterile room and whatever. Apparently he was safe. Apparently he was safe enough. You know, I mean, everyone does surgeries. I mean, you know, these things are common. You know? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like that's why it's saying that he did it. He took whatever precautions necessary, you know? Yeah. It isn't just that he was able to, uh, or he felt that it was necessary to put himself in a situation where he, you know, was relying on, it's almost like he was, you know, relying on. No, he wasn't relying on. It depends. He wasn't going to die. It wasn't, the nace wasn't to save him. It was in order to demonstrate this fact that he was accurate, that his gut was, uh, was on. So he was invoking the Hashgacha to be able to assist. Now, I'm sure you could come up with other ways to interpret it. If you don't like the literalness of the story, I'm sure there are other ways. You can make it a mashal for, he's looking for a baskal from Shemayim, I don't know, some sort. But the point is, whatever the particulars of the story are, but the point is, the Nesu was vindicating him as a legitimate Balamasora and his method as being legit. Yeah? See that, Jared, in terms of miracles that are literal and two types of miracles. One where a miracle is unexpected and it happens right. to the person. Another where the person does, does right. a miracle. Yes. So in that second case, the person does a miracle. Yeah. Is it, do they, I mean, is it, they think that this is the right moment for yeah. a miracle? Or is it because they have some nebula? Or is no. it just... I don't know. It seems that's what's interesting. That's what, to me, is interesting about the story of Pinchas ben Yair and the fact that the Rashba interprets it as being that he literally split, right? That's one of his cases. It sounds like he made the river split, or, you know. So it seems like, at least according to Rashba, is learning that, yeah, I mean, he, uh, Chacham has, I mean, we don't know, we don't know he, these things. Oh, Elisha and the Navi, not Elisha. No, no, no. Yeah. We don't yeah, I don't know. You know, it's hard for us to know these things. I mean, we're not, we're not at the level of these people. So to know what their cheshben was. Yeah, maybe they had some sort of a nevoah, or maybe they, I mean, Elisha was an avi. Maybe they had some intuition that this was the right thing to do. Maybe they're, I don't know. Maybe they're mispala. I'm not sure. That's already, it's a good question. I know. You wouldn't think that we, the Rashba, you can look at the Rashba. It's interesting. He sounds like the, the, they have the capacity to do miracles at times. Sounds that way. But again, it's not so simple because obviously Rikiba didn't do a miracle to save himself. And there are many great miracle, te- many terrible tragedies that have happened where we could use a few more miracles to help us. So apparently it's not so simple. But, you know, the calculus which is used to be able to decide when and where the Baal Masora has the right to invoke that, I think is beyond us. 
But at the same time, we could interpret the story and see what we could learn from it, even though we can't fully know the parameters of when and where. You know? Yeah. Okay. Good. Any questions? Okay. Alrighty. Oh. Yep.